Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. I am here today uh, with one of, uh, it's it's really an honor. I, it's one of the predominant voices in, in horror and genre cinema today. Maybe you became acquainted with his work uh, way back when in those original VHS days. You can get reacquainted with it in the new, some new VHS days coming up. Um, recently, maybe you were dazzled by the um, Rebecca Hall-led and David Bruckner helmed The Night House. Maybe you are like, hey guys, The Ritual is maybe one of the best slept on horrors of the past like 10 years. Or maybe you are a fan of Hellraiser and you recently caught that movie in its Hulu debut. David Bruckner, what else do the people need to know about you before we kick it off officially today? <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, 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 I think that's it. I think you covered it pretty much. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe that I. Well, I, I came up doing anthologies, so yeah. I was doing. You mentioned VHS. I just, I was kind of, uh, I kind of cut my teeth on all kinds of anthologies. So I just did a one called Southbound. Mm-hmm. And people have seen Southbound, and then we did one even before that called The Signal, which is very precious to me. And uh, so I'm just happy to be alive and working in horror and uh, yeah, and happy to be here. So thank you. Well, I think I will. I will actually start mm-hmm. off with uh, because I was able to interview Ty West for this earlier when he was on the, doing the mm-hmm. rounds for Pearl. I wanted to I feel like, you know, it was that era, that sort of coterie of filmmakers who were coming up in the early mid 10s in that in that sort of anthology realm when anthologies were really hitting a zenith. Like an anthology is a structure where your mileage may vary depending on the entry. But that was a time when a horror anthology was coming out. It was kind of like, I kind of think every one of these is going to be really good. Like we were really spoiled in that time. And I wanted to hear from you about what that era was like for you and what the sort of attitude was in your little filmmaking repertory when you guys were, you know, now we know that you were planting the seeds for a time that would be yielding so much more years later with obviously Ty making the Maxine trilogy and you with this like excellent string of films. And then Adam Wingard is over here making fucking Godzilla movies. Like, what was what was the tenor of that era like for you? Yeah, no, this, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, I mean, we were. I, I, I came out of Atlanta, so there was. Uh, I was lucky to be surrounded by uh, uh, a group of people who were super prolific, always making things, mm. and we didn't know what we didn't know. So we weren't super industry focused, you know. And um, I was. Uh, I didn't go to film school. I went to. I ended up in my early 20s working in a theater in Atlanta called Push Push Theater, and. Their mentality was that their funding was based on uh, workshopping ideas. And at a certain point, you invite an audience in on that, as opposed to sort of a mandate where you have to put butts in seats. So the kind of community that formed around that, some of us were filmmakers, uh, were just excited about the idea of like, let's just go make stuff and, and try things. And that was very much the spirit of it. And so there was uh, really from the mid-aughts into kind of VHS, which was 2011, 2012, and then beyond a bit, there was this uh, mentality of like, just do things mm. uh, as little friction as humanly possible. Take out your 2005 DVX 100 <laughs> in 24P and just go shoot something. <laughs> and uh, and if you can make films with frequency and relieve uh, the burden of uh, all this artifice uh, from the filmmakers, then you get more of a audience filmmaker relationship. You can just make things quicker and you can get feedback quicker. And mm. so. Um, we, we took that theater's mentality and turned it into a film program that we called the Dailies Project. And the Dailies Project is we throw challenges out to the community and just say, everybody go make, uh, go tell a story that is uh, the same action. Everybody go do a seduction, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, everybody go uh, film a movie in Piedmont Park uh, in Atlanta and uh, uh, incorporate this element from another short film. Mm-hmm. And then we would screen these at local venues and that really became my film school. Mm-hmm. And so out of that emerged a movie called The Signal, which was uh, kind of an exquisite corpse drawing where I went and shot the first part of a feature film and then handed it off to the next fing- filmmaker uh, and so on and so forth. And um, and that got, in, got us into Sundance um, <laughs> as a huge surprise, just like an offering <laughs> to the cinema gods. But we shot it for $50,000 in wow. 13 days. And um, and then we got started. And from there, I was really fortunate to uh, get to work on VHS. And that's where I met you know, Ty and Glenn McQuaid and the Radio Silence uh, guys and um, uh, Simon Barrett, Joe Swanberg and 
uh, and Adam and, and, uh, and then everybody was kind of doing that thing. Like that was sort of the entire group. Mm. And, um, some of those kids were just churning movies out, uh, uh, really, really quickly. And, uh, I was just so impressed by what they were able to do, but that was, um, yeah, that was very much the spirit of the era. And then we all got studio jobs and we started waiting around to get our movies made and <laughs> got, got, got pulled into the grinder. And uh, it was a, a whole different experience at that point. Well, I find that I, it's such a it's just such an interesting I wanted to make sure and ask you about it to, to try and to get mm-hmm. like a, a full built out perspective of as many people as I can from that time, because I find it so fascinating mm-hmm. with that sort of run and gun, just make mentality that's running headlong Mm -hmm. into the prevailing sort of studio mores of the day, which is excess, which is remakes, which is big and glossy and shiny and taking very like the, the era of the sexy ensemble pulled straight from the WB before it was the CW and like add a stunt cast, throw a Paris Hilton in there, throw an R and B star in there. Like it was such an machine precision, um, prolific, IP factory at that time. I, you know, I, I know that people talk in, in a lot of terms like that then, but I love that era of horror. It's it's glorious garbage, but it it is mm-hmm. so in its ethos the opposite of what you guys were doing. It was kind of an incredible era of counter programming to the prevailing mentality of what horror should look like on a big screen. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's great to think about. And I mean, I think some ways like VHS was kind of a response to the fact that Mm. found footage had suddenly run rampant Mm. and that it was a cheap way for studios to make huge dollars. And so we thought... Well, let's all go do our own little found footage shorts. And because they're shorts, you know, you can kind of get in late and get out early. You don't kind of wear the burden of a, of a three-act structure that you have to maintain with an audience. And so they were, you know, and, and even in resurrecting VHS in recent years, we've talked about it as like their fuck you movies. And so it felt like a reaction against all of that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also just filmmaking and it's also found footage is awesome. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really enjoyed making the film. So we, we sort of ended up, I think, in a synergistic place with some of the directors on the other side. And then, and then some of us, like I got, I got attached quite early in, in 2013, 2014 to a Friday the 13th movie of and, and, and spent a lot of time. You got to work with some great writers kind of looking at what that reboot might be. And I'm like really happy it didn't happen because I think I wouldn't have been ready mm. to just navigate the political atmosphere of a studio at that point. I don't know that I am yet either, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it was an interesting collision of forces. And, and I would say that the, the, the dilemma kind of persists in some ways of, uh, you know, can you afford to uh, and t- afford the risk of doing your own thing on a small scale and then uh, really, really honing your own particular voice? Um, I recently did a uh, moderated a Q and A for uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Something in the yeah, dirt, which yeah, I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. And and those are two filmmakers that have managed to stay in that space and really cultivate it and build a model around it that's really great. Mm-hmm. So I find that super admirable. And then at the same time, it's it's fun to take on bigger toys. It's fun to to think larger and kind of in, engage in the studio world and and uh, and take a shot at it. So um, the, the the struggle continues. <laughs> the, well, I think that is a yeah. I think that's a perfect sentiment, honestly, to segue into the the foundation conversation. That we're, like speaking of navigating mm-hmm. the political forces of the institution. The movie mm-hmm. that you have brought for us to discuss today is the classic broadcast news and the character is holly hunter in her tour de force performance as jane the broadcast news segment producer it starts off with this very high-tech syntho sequency type thing like this that's the news You are a fan, clearly. Oh, man, uh, oh, man. <laughs> a junkie yeah. for journalism narratives. 
Yeah, you know, me too. And uh, like, I think in general, just workplace narratives altogether, yeah. I love. And uh, as a genre filmmaker, most of the time you're, you're dealing with friendships. I've made a bunch of movies about friendships. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the family. It's like you, you sometimes can't get the politics of the workplace into a genre film. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, And there's so much to be mined there that's kind of fascinating. And it's where we spend most of our lives. And um, like uh, filmmakers, film writers, we're all kind of workaholics. Mm-hmm. So like this. It's, it's a it's it's a place I'm at a lot. So <laughs> I've always had an affinity for those kinds of movies, and um, in particular uh, journalism movies because it's it's storytelling on a mass scale. And <laughs> I love thinking about how stories are translated and how they affect our perception. And some of my early movies, we mentioned the Signal. I mean, the Signal is about. Uh, a a kind of rogue frequency Mm -hmm. that's driving people to violence, but it's emanating from something somewhere Mm -hmm. and it's ending up on all your devices. And I was very much a kind of satire about media run rampant. Mm -hmm. Even my VHS short I thought was about um, the pervasiveness of pornography. And it's like if in 2011, it's like, you know, for young men, everything they learned about sex, they learned from, you know, mm-hmm. Pornhub or something, then they would emulate something that looked like a Girls Gone Wild video. And of course, then this becomes this like interesting satire that you can inject into horror. And so that was journalism. Media was always just a place that really, really fascinated me. I and, wondered if there was um, any sort of journalistic spark mm-hmm. for you when you were younger, perhaps when you saw this, if that was ever a poll for you or if that was just totally ancillary. Uh, no, it would always scare the responsibility, the direct responsibility <laughs> of it would scare the shit out of me. Yeah, I don't think I, it should. you know, that I couldn't imagine. That is a good imagine. healthy respect to have for the art and science of journalism. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, absolutely, you know. and uh, But I think also a lot of it came out of um, just being, uh, frankly, kind of addicted to punditry at a certain <laughs> yeah. time. Like, like the rise of cable news in the mid-aughts when that came about mm-hmm. was you could feel the world changing in a way that would would sort of would be the precursor in some ways to our kind of uh, like hyper divided you know mm-hmm. the crossfire sort of the crossfire era. I was actually I actually saw uh, when John Stewart was on Crossfire. I caught it the day it came on. I watched and just that was live. Hearing, but oh, you did too. Yep, yeah, yep. yeah, that was a moment. Yeah, and who would who would think that Tucker Carlson would ascend uh, <laughs> as he as he has he would, into he would, like, hyper villainy. Yeah, he would ascend so high, in fact, the snake would start eating its tail and he would begin an infinite descent um, into the bowels of hell. <laughs> Truly. Paul the Gala, the dead in a ditch. We don't know. Like, that, 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 that crossfire ended. Crossfire ended a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. He could be the devil himself. We don't know. <laughs> we'll, see what, we'll see what happens. He's in the um, Leviathan. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Um, that's an interesting, that would be an interesting mashup. But uh, uh, but I found it was like, it was kind of in that era that uh, I really fell in love with broadcast news in particular. Mm. And it was, it was a lot of movies like that. It was Insider. It was uh, Network was a big one. Yeah. But um, uh, Network did this too, even 10 years previous. But broadcast news really, uh, it was topical to all that. Like it, it, it sort of saw some of this coming mm-hmm. and a lot of the underlying tension was about uh, what would happen necessarily once entertainment injected the news. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jane Craig, Holly Hunter's character, is really, uh, she's an idealist at the center of her craft who is trying to maintain it and its integrity Almost, you know, uh, to the to the point of her own self-destruction and peril mm-hmm. in some ways. And there's a consequence to that. And maybe she takes it too far. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, against sort of the forces of the market coming in in some ways. And so, um, I, I, you know, TV news journalism is filmmaking. And so it's just natural to mm-hmm. kind of watch that and see how she's immersed in the world around her and the kind of daily challenges that she faces that is easy to relate to in that regard. But... I should also say that I also I think what's kind of extraordinary about the film is that um, it's it's really a love triangle. Yes, one of the most incredible, compelling character interaction dynamic that's ever been captured on film. The magic of Albert Brooks, Holly Hunter, uh, and William Hurt. Mm-hmm. My God, it is electric with all of them. Yeah, yeah, they're fantastic. I, wa- I watched it again last night. We had a friend in town. She'd never seen it, and she was just glued oh. to the screen. And uh, and I, I, I probably watch it every couple of years, but I just was, like, uh, so in love with the way they find a synergy between 
all the conflicts of this romance playing itself out, mm-hmm. uh, but they find it in the workplace, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you, you start to see uh, flirtation manifest uh, as people are working together when they get that kind of synergistic high mm-hmm. of creating great news, of, ma- of filmmaking in the moment yes, in some yes. ways, that there's a real point of connection there. And, uh, and then just the jockeying for status that happens internally. Um, you know, your podcast is about relating to this stuff. So I should say that like, um, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of what it's about also, I think is Jane's experience as a woman in the workplace. And it's very much a snapshot of eighties journalism. So some of the kind of politics of, you know, dating in the workplace are things that it's very much a time capsule for the Mm eighties. Like it doesn't translate the way we might imagine to today. And, um, uh, and then I think it's, I think it's very much like Jane's experience as a woman there. And, uh, you know, obviously for me, I, I just relate more to kind of the craft and the filmmaking and mm-hmm. sort of the, you know, the ideas of, um, uh, of uh, someone who's overcommitted to what she's trying to do and is sometimes, uh, struggling to connect to the other individuals around her outside of that. Tom's not ready for the job you're about to hand him. Not near ready, not by the longest shot. Now, Aaron spent six weeks in Tripoli. He's interviewed Gaddafi. He reported on the 81 story. I think he's essential to do the job we're capable of. And I I think it's my responsibility to tell you that. Okay, that's your opinion. I don't agree. It's not opinion. You're just absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. It must be nice to always believe you know better. To always think you're the smartest person in the room. Do you also sit in hotel rooms and cry alone for minutes at a time before re-engaging with the world around you? I mean, production's a lot like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Produ- <laughs> yeah. Production's an extremely lonely, terrifying experience where you have to be on all the time mm-hmm. and you're typically way out on a limb and uh, you just don't know what's going to land and what's not to and you're not going to and you're sort of you're hanging on to an idea mm-hmm. or a belief in an idea or a belief in the way you come to ideas mm-hmm. and uh, and you're, you're having to uh, convince everybody around you to just stay on that train and continue. And sometimes it's sometimes it feels like a like a foolish obsession. Mm-hmm. And yet you have to kind of continue. There's a really amazing moment in the film where they're. Um, they're somewhere in Central America, her and Albert Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's they, Nicaragua. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they suggest that uh, one of the soldiers put on his boot and they catch it on camera. And she just has to run in and say, wait, 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 don't put on that boot. We do not invent the news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put on the boot. No, Manny, no. What the hell? No, stop, 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 stop. We are not here to stage the news. You wait and you see what they do. Okay. Sir, you, you can do okay. whatever you want. It's your choice. And so he has to sit there with like a camera pointed <laughs> at him and decide if it's going to be an action captured and not created. And you just instantly see the absurdity of trying to maintain this stuff. And uh, uh, I, I don't know, that feels that feels a lot like some of the things that you hang on to mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the weeds of filmmaking. But yeah. Well, and, it, and it's just it's the it's it's the simplest story. It's it's broadcast news is we follow these three protagonists, perhaps some antagonists in there mm-hmm. as well, as like yeah. they are at the DC Bureau of a broadcast news station in uh, in Washington, DC. And Albert Brooks is the dogged, uh, incredibly dedicated, hard-nosed reporter, go anywhere, cover any assignment. Holly Hunter is the obsessive, furiously capable executive producer. And William Hurt is the handsome, never really had to work hard a day in his life guy who just keeps falling into opportunities because he's an anchor. And as Holly lines out for us at the beginning of the movie, her sort of entire ethos is she is a react, she is living in reaction to at this point, the celebrityification of the news where it has become so anchor driven and so image driven as represented by people like William Hurt, that it comes at the expense of actual dedicated journalism. And we follow them as this love triangle plays out and the highs and lows evergreen topic of your job safety in a newsroom in America. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so well put. Yeah, that's totally it. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think one of the things that I really love about it is that it's, it, 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 there's such a humanist approach to the characters in the filmmaking. So you feel for everybody. And, uh, and I think, um, uh, 
like, like I, I don't just relate to the Jane Craig character. Mm-hmm. Like I relate to the other two newsmen at, in their various ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Tom William Hurt's character is, I mean, if you've ever been in over your head, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or known that, uh, that you're a little bit unprepared for something and you have to try to keep up in the environment around you. Mm-hmm. Like he is that manifest. Real fake it till you make it. On. He absolutely, and he's actually trying in earnest to be clear about that, but he's so punished from the people around him constantly in the beginning mm-hmm. that uh, he kind of can't announce his, uh, uh, his his lack of education towards the matter. He just is constantly getting brutalized for it. And um, and then Albert Brooks is this, uh, I mean, he, there's such a diligence to everything that he's doing, and at the same time, um, he just can't seem to connect with people mm-hmm. on what's happening necessarily. And it's like, I feel like, like I couldn't really put my finger on which of those roles I've spent the most amount of time in between <laughs> yeah. the three of them. I feel like you just, I feel like the experience of making something is to oscillate between these various positions mm-hmm, continually mm-hmm. at all times, you know, and, uh, and they're just so wonderfully carved in that way. And, um, some of the sweetest moments are just seeing when their kind of, uh, their approaches have to collide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing the conflicts that ensue, like seeing Will, William Hurt try to train Albert Brooks as to how oh. to do the anchor position. <laughs> yeah. Just remember that you're not just reading the news or narrating. Everybody has to sell a little. You're selling them this idea of you. You know, you're sort of saying, trust me, I'm um, credible. So when you feel yourself just reading, stop. Start selling a little. Which, of course, fails in a horrible way. <laughs> And the flop uh, sweat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's painful to watch. It's I feel agony. like it's it's like British office level agony yeah. to see on the screen. Yes. Yeah, which is like a horror film in its own right. If if social anxiety were 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 a genre nightmare, but well, watching this last night and then knowing that you're like you know like you said you've gone from that like sort of very independent make it however you can make it and then like going and then working with studios and waiting for your movie to get made and working through those various iterations of being a director in this industry. It made me think of, there was a recent profile of the director Nikiatu Jusu in Vulture, mm-hmm. done by Angelica J. Mm-hmm. Bastian. And she had a quote that was broken out as a poll quote that I really have hung on to. And that she says, the more you see of the figurative monster that is the industry, the more you assess what you're willing to do to get what other people have gotten. And I was watching this movie and this quote came into my head and I'm watching Holly Hunter push back in that tension between trend and tradition and her complete moral correctness and knowing too that like as at any juncture in the industry I would imagine there's there's this tension that you find as a director but I would imagine as there are more masters and more high profile masters those check writer people that you are working forward with and around I wanted to hear from you about your own path walking through that tension like that sort of bridge that you cross when you kind of realize that either you or people around you are making choices about how to get what other people have gotten. And we have very clear roadmaps for the very horrible examples of what people have done in this industry to obtain what, what others before them have had. And I wanted to, I wanted to hear you discuss a bit that like the Jane in you competing Mm -hmm. against, butting up against the nature of the industry and how that's been for you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Great question. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, first of all, one thing it's interesting to me about the film broadcast news, just to say that, uh, again, these characters are archetypes. And so it, it, for, for me, that's how I view yeah, it. I think, so it's yeah. like, I mean, it, we meet the them film, as archetypes. The, when we meet them in the cold open at the beginning of the movie, they're child versions of themselves and they're so concentrated. They must grow up to become the adults that we meet immediately after this. Look, it's time for you to go to sleep. I just have two more pink pals, then I'm all done. Finish quickly. I don't want you getting obsessive about these things. Good night. Right, right. And it's beautifully told and so <laughs> funny to sort of track that across the film. And I think, uh, but it's not, you know, they're, they're, they're forces that live inside us, mm-hmm. you know. And so, um, so Jane's kind of plea to keep everything sacred is... Uh, is something I struggle with. I'm, I'm, I'm sure any working artist struggles with, but mm-hmm. it al- is also at some level or another kind of unattainable. Like mm-hmm. filmmaking is always born of compromise. Mm-hmm. So before you have to deal with the bankers, 
uh, and, uh, and, and mass audiences in the very narrow landing strip that is a studio film necessarily. Yeah. Um, there's just the realities of filmmaking, mm-hmm. you know, there's all the things you want to get done on a day and you can't get done on a day and, mm-hmm. um, and all the things that you can't see coming. And, uh, so there's always this, it's always somewhere between, the concept of what you have in your mind um, uh, and the spirit of what that is and then just the haphazard nature of uh, many, many different minds uh, coming together in a very short window of time and having to produce something mm-hmm. and um, um, and seeing where you land. And it's always a bit of an act of faith in that regard to just know that you're going to land somewhere mm-hmm. and that you can steer the ship a little bit, but that you can't steer it completely. Mm-hmm. And um, that you sometimes just kind of kind of have to lean into the way things are going and roll with it and have the humility to respect that. And well, then um, I would imagine experiencing that on a whole escalated level with like you directed episodes of creep show, but then like coming yeah. into the endeavor that is Hellraiser. It's like speaking yeah. of a speaking of predecessors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's a situation like that's for me, like my first studio film. And that's, that's, uh, that's so crazy I, I to think about. That's so crazy to think about. You've done so much and you've been busy for so long. It's just like, oh, wow, that's the first studio. And Nighthouse is so beautiful. It's so polished, like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were very lucky with those movies. There's, we got to sell them at film festivals, but we were, you know, kind of largely left alone on that. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we were left alone on Hellraiser too. And, but, nice. um, but I would say, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the first time there was uh, an expectation mm. about what we might create and a long history of trying to get Hellraiser movies made in the studio system. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say there was a bunch of like cigar chewing like suits that are sort of dictating, you know, it's not Mulholland Drive, like, yeah. this is going to be the girl. You know, it's, it's not this sort of insidious, like, cloaked in shadow uh, engineering of how the film will be. But there are, um, I think, what emerge sort of uh, uh, ideas about what can succeed mm-hmm. in a market. Because mm-hmm. you do eventually have to convince bankers to pay for what you're doing and like what will persist or what, what you, how you might have to approach the story that has been kind of learned behavior over the years Mm -hmm. and sort of everybody takes that experience into something. And so out of that does emerge kind of an idea of what you can do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and some of it's just, you know, like, uh, uh, coming on board to something and, and recognizing, where it's going and what it's going to be. And, and, um, and if you can see a vision for that and you can love it, it's like, then it very much becomes a collaborative art form. But no, I mean, like everything in filmmaking, it's not born without compromise. Have you like, and then there, you know, and there's that, that great Mm -hmm. blow up that, that Jane has in the airport with Tom, where she, you know, realizes this ethical breach that he's made and putting out a very sensitive segment about sexual assault. And she learns that like he, he contrived a scenario in which he cried on camera and then opted to edit that in explicitly so he looked very tender so it was it was a real hero moment for him you could get fired for things like that i got promoted for things like that working up tears for a news piece cut away you totally crossed the line between what is ethical and cross what is garbage it. they keep moving the little sucker don't they and he's like yeah but then the line just keeps moving so like where like where does it end like where like the the boundaries too blurred and i what i what i want to hear from you is if you do you feel like you have been spared the kind of like ethical sitting with yourself moments where you've had to decide like am I going to go this route am I being given a note that I feel really uncomfortable with and I'm going to have to make a hard choice or do you do you feel like you have kind of managed to skate around those sort of scenarios or is that something you have faced in your own career I I I would say I'm first of all I love that moment because he he makes his case Mm-hmm. You know, uh, his case is for those of you who've seen it, it's like, well, I was crying anyway. Mm-hmm. So what if I spun the camera around and cried again? Like yep. where yep. you're saying, where is the line necessarily? Mm-hmm. And for Jane, that's well across it. And um, I think, uh, yeah, those ethical kinds of quandaries absolutely emerge uh, in filmmaking. I mean, we're making genre films, so we don't have to. There's not sort of truth in journalism yeah. that we have to maintain. Yeah. But there is. Um, a sensitivity that at times has to emerge about certain subjects. It's mm-hmm. like, I think you have to take the story seriously. You have to know that there are, uh, particularly with something like Nighthouse, you're dealing with uh, suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. depression, anxiety. It's like these are, and you're also making a genre film that's got to be fun that people have to enjoy. And 
somewhere between making the story make sense, making the story a fun ride on a Friday night, yeah. and being true to the real experiences that people have, there are quandaries that emerge that come into play and sort of how are you going to represent this? Mm-hmm. And um, I've been fortunate that I've never had <clears throat> a, a huge pushback on something mm-hmm. where sort of a, a, a somebody behind the money wanted us to do something that felt overtly wrong or like we were misrepresenting something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I will say there are a lot of moments that come into being where I, just on an internal level, whether it's just me and the producers or the writers are looking at something and mm-hmm. going, well, that doesn't work narratively, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is how we feel mm-hmm. about this subject. So like, how do we get that in there? Or are we in some dishonest way paying lip service to something but not really owning it or or wearing it in some way and uh i you know you do your best with that what i like about broadcast news is how quietly what you may in the future regard to be the wrong choice can kind of emerge and it's not it's not always obvious Mm -hmm. sometimes it's um it's a it's a simpler question about what the right path would be Mm -hmm. um sometimes it's um it's kind of hidden in the beginning and you have to, you have to really look at it and go, yeah, when we blow this up on a big screen, um, we might accidentally make something that's offensive in the wrong way mm-hmm. or is um, uh, just untrue. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment talking more with David Bruckner. Then you'll have one quick thing about Adam Driver versus Dinosaurs in the brand new trailer for the movie called 65. This has just come to my attention and it is filling my thoughts. Hi, I'm Janet Varney. And just like you, I survived high school. And we're not alone. On my podcast, The JV Club, I invite some of my friends to share the highs and lows of their teen years, like moments with Aisha Tyler. But when you're a kid, the stakes are just pretty low. Go to school, try not to get in trouble, get laid. Jamila Jamil. I watched television probably every waking hour during that time when I was shit-faced on medicine. And Dave Holmes. We talked and talked, and then everybody left. It was just us two, and I was like, I love you. Learn how you too can be a functioning adult after the drama and heartbreak of high school. Every week on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a judgment-free show. Hal Lublin here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment, professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. Director David Bruckner is my co-host today, and he brought a deliciously unexpected character with him. Holly Hunter's Jane from Broadcast News, the great 1987 film from James L. Brooks. And when I say great, I mean absolutely fantastic great. David has been directing films for a long time, but he recently made his first studio film with Hellraiser, which is where we will be picking up our conversation right now. You've you've spoken clearly about being aware that this is like a landmark queer text of horror cinema and that it is that it is a text that is important to you individually. And so you have you have a reverence for the property as it exists as Hellraiser. You have an awareness for the resonance that this has with queer folks imbued by this like incredible transgressive erotic horror that with you know that Clive Barker created in his source material and I wanted to hear from you about like the way that you maybe not necessarily wrestled because that's a laden term but the way that you really dove in 
to accessing that part of it, knowing that like our mores are different now. Transgression is different now. What played as right. a complete dangerous violation in 1988, things are a little bit different in the public sphere now. The, the billboards for American Horror Stories most recent season that are all up around at Los Angeles are Hellraiser imagery splayed across the mainstream landscape. And so I wanted to hear how you, because you clearly did take that seriously and you clearly did put thought mm-hmm. into that. And I wanted to just hear some sort of like details from you about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I, well, uh, on some level, I think we took seriously the idea that it was a different time Mm -hmm. and that we were revisiting something uh, that had a particular resonance when it came into being and that we had to be true to the moment and thinking about what this meant now, uh, but also paying homage to how it came to be. And so um, a lot of that, you know, we tried to, you know, give uh, voice to the queer elements of the original in our casting and in the representation of the film in so many different ways. That felt absolutely essential. Um, And then also in our design, we felt that we had to kind of rethink what some of those elements were. And so, you know, you may be talking about a lot of people will notice the loss of black leather which was a big swing, which was a big decision that we made. And um, I think your your choice to, to really lead into body mm-hmm. modification was absolutely stunning. I, I think Oh, that's great. It, it mm-hmm. was evocative, and I think it was a gorgeous choice. Uh, that's great to hear. I know it, it's been divisive, I think, for some. And I think, look, some of it just comes... Uh, just comes from how I want to regard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things that we love from the past. Yeah. Like, I appreciate iterative reinventions of things. Mm-hmm. To me, it helps me see them in different ways. Like, mm-hmm. I'm somebody that loves that every few years we get a different Batman. I love, and, on, uh, I love, I what I love about genre is that it is a space of remix and reinvention. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for us, we felt like because, uh, Black leather uh, as a, as a symbol, as an ideas design element, had become so ubiquitous mm-hmm. that it had infiltrated all corners of uh, the culture that it wasn't forbidden in the same way that it was mm-hmm. in 87. And so as it represented, in particular, the queer community in 87, and uh, as it uh, represented something that was transgressive or forbidden at the time, that we just couldn't get to the same feeling now. Mm-hmm. That what we would be doing is creating a sort of museum piece to something that had come before us. Because that's how we remember it, and mm-hmm. um, and that's something that we do very much with the things that we love right now. Things are very nostalgia-focused. Totally. And for us, it was a more daring move. It was kind of a gutsier reinterpretation to say, um, what if the Cenobites aren't necessarily tethered to a subculture? Like, mm-hmm. what if that was one version that I'm mm-hmm. sure will cycle back around at a later time, but that this was a vision of something that was a bit more eternal, that didn't... Um, exist within the parameters of something that we understand. That mm-hmm. the Cenobites, if they were, you know, uh, 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 mired in human pursuits at extreme levels that mm-hmm. were new to us or foreign to us or frightening to us, which I do think was the perception of it at the time, like that is what's baked into the original premise, that it wouldn't be on terms that were so familiar to us. Right. And, and that that might make it off-putting or engaging in a new way. Uh, it might make it frightening. And that you could still get the basic tenets in there. You could still get, you know, the, 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 the glamour that they carried, the vanity that existed mm-hmm. sort of in the way they rendered themselves. And then it could still be BDSM, which mm-hmm. was an important part of the original film. And so uh, we, we, we really, really tried to make sure that the, that the, the elements of you know, bondage and discipline and that the sadomasochistic sort of spirit of it, um, the, the dominance and submission and all the play inherent was still, uh, uh, was still present in the way the Cenobites behaved and the way they interacted with their subjects. Mm -hmm. We just changed the iconography, but that was an exciting choice to us. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and honestly, my first conversations with Clive, it was, uh, we were kind of already off on that path and uh, but one of his first questions with me is like, how are you going to do BDSM now? Like it's yeah. different. And so I showed him the designs and, and he took to it and he instantly got it and, hmm. and welcomed it as a departure. So we felt enthralled to pursue that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is so much more the body can be made to feel. And you'll feel it all before we're through in original text Hellraiser and in this text Hellraiser, these are stories of obsession. They're stories of obsessive mm-hmm. pursuit. And then back in um, 
you know, I, I, the night house there is very much, it is a, I think it's very much a story of an obsession as well. Like there, there are mental mm-hmm. health aspects of it too, but there's a, a fixation and a drive um, by Rebecca Hall's character towards something that she has to unpack. And then in um, broadcast news, we have Jane like in an obsessively driven character to sort of uphold uphold these norms and rights that she sees as true in in her industry and in the world. And I wanted to hear from you about what is the draw. And, and you mentioned too, I think it's a great space to mention. You mentioned that like another, another movie, another set of characters you were kind of considering mulling over for this was Zodiac and like the, the protagonists mm-hmm. of that. And that is absolutely a story of obsessive pursuit. So I wanted to know what is so appealing to you about the well of obsession to keep going back to it. It's an extremely broad topic word, but like what is, where does that primally just like keep pulling you back in? I mean, it's, well, it's always driven. Um, it's uh, certainly for me, uh, I, 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 ha- I don't know why filmmaking stuck. I always thought I would get talked out of it in some way. So it's, uh, and a movie is something that you just become fixated on towards the end to, mm-hmm. uh, to the nth degree. And by the end of it, you're just pulling everybody along. So uh, look, it's instantly relatable in that regard. And uh, something about p- possession is always, um, uh, energized. It's always a bit perverse and, mm-hmm. uh, there's always an identity kind of crisis in the middle of it that mm-hmm. you're working through. But, um, I, I appreciate the valiant effort of, uh, connecting broadcast news to Hellraiser. That might be the first time <laughs> this ever happened. This is my job to find the threads. <laughs> and I think the yeah. obsession thing really comes, I don't even think it's a stretch to do it. I think it's right there for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say, though, you know, it's interesting because I don't think that our Hellraiser movie is about obsession. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that's been something that I think it, it, it's been criticized for a bit, and which I understand. I think I think that came more out of the idea that one of the ways that Hellraiser could exist mm-hmm. uh, in a contemporary way was that um, you might broaden the per, the human pursuits that the box represents. Mm-hmm. So in the original film, it was you know hedonism and pleasures of the flesh. And uh, one of the things that I thought was really exciting about this new uh, piece was that um, David Goyer and uh, Ben Collins and Petrowski had written the script had found a way to sort of uh, create these different iterations of the box that mm-hmm. all demonstrated things that felt very Cenobite-like. The men's Lord. Lauderet, Liminal, Lazarus, Leviathan. What would you ask of us? The lore configuration that's about wisdom is about pulling, you know, if the, the kind of hellish conclusion of that, the Cenobite version of that, should you choose lore is mm-hmm. to pull the veil back on the universe and receive too much data about how, <laughs> yeah. how everything works. Yeah. Your head might explode, who knows, you know. Um, and then they had Lauder, which was about love, which we can imagine if you, you know, if you, you sought to not be alone, what would it be like to coalesce with another being to share their thoughts, to be codependent to the point of it, you know, being nightmarish to mm-hmm. us. Um, and then of course, um, <clears throat> liminal configuration, which is pleasure and the intersection of pain. And then, um, and then, uh, uh, uh Lazarus, which is resurrection, which is, I think about permanence and time shaped like an hourglass. It's mm-hmm. about an eternity, which we can assume the Cenobites uh, exist outside of our framework. And then mm-hmm. Leviathan, which is about power and, um, uh, and about the, 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 the kind of desire to choose who faces what and to what extent, uh, oh. to control the universe. And, uh, which as we find out in the film is about yourself being a Cenobite. And then, uh, and then of course, lament, which mm-hmm. is about the limitations. It's about accepting the, you know, the suffering of life and, uh, all the things that you will never see. And, um, I always thought this first film was about lament. You choose to live, to carry that weight, bitter and brief. You have chosen the lament configuration. At the end of the film, when when the priest speaks to Riley and she says, uh, you know, bitter and brief. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, you know, she, Jamie and I were talking about how to play it. And, and what we came to was just like, you know, have pity on her, like mm-hmm. for all the things that she will never know. And so interestingly, like um, that, it's such an energized topic and it's something that 
Uh, I, I, I think I would love to explore in a Hellraiser film. I just think this first film was, it was what it got off on that was uh, very, very clear to me mm-hmm. in being true to it was a story of um, someone who was negotiating the kind of consequence of her desires or running rampant that she had to atone for something. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's a different story, but it's mm-hmm. one that's also not unfamiliar. Yeah. <laughs> well, that I... I it's interesting to think, like, when films come to filmmakers in their lives, like you were saying, like, ultimately I'm glad that the Friday the 13th movie didn't work out because, like, I would have been ready for it at the time. And it's, I have to imagine that, like, if 2013 David gets Hellraiser, 2013 David must have, like, a different relationship and point of view on, like, grief and guilt because your life experience is just different. It's, it's just crazy to me to think about, like how like a different era in your life would have made this a totally different Hellraiser because of those very intimate and frightening sort of themes that you find yourself going back to. It's like, wow, it would 10 years ago Hellraiser have been like a darker movie or would it have been like a, no, I think there would have been more levity to it. I think it would have been more smart ass for sure. Interesting. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was on the heels of the yachts. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I, I think the contemporary setting and me does manifest a bit of a, um, a, a, a different kind of responsibility for the material that comes out in filmmaking one way or another. But I love what you're saying. I don't know that I, I wonder in, in talking with other filmmakers, what you've come across here, but I sort of, believe the basic thing that you kind of you can only tell your own story and mm-hmm. it sort of will emerge whether you want it to or not right and uh oftentimes it's only after the fact that you realize you set out to do this one thing and then you're the movie's all said and done and you're going like wow i'm really just therapeutically processing this one thing <laughs> in this movie that i've been that i've just put out in front of everybody and uh, do they know now I have, <laughs> they know yeah yeah it's all there well, what do you think you're, you know, confronted with the priest at the end of the story? Is it a is it an internal debate which configuration you would choose? Or do you know? Or or are you walking away? You like, oh fuck no, I know I would go for that Leviathan man. Or are you like, no, I'm I'm with I'm with Odessa, I'm walking out of that room. I mean, at this year in my life, I, I would run screaming towards lament. But uh, maybe when I was younger, I would have ended up somewhere else. But uh, but no, I, I what one of the things I loved about the end of the script, and it's still those last few scenes are my. I just feel like the whole movie is building to that. Mm-hmm. Is that you know we tried to not make a judgment one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So um, you know Riley denies it and in certain genre terms she she survives and makes what you would think is the obvious choice but also um voight reaches transcendence and so voight's ascension is counterpoint to riley's experience and so everything that she will never understand he's about to go on a journey and he (laughs) i mean he practically orgasms at the end i mean there is this sort of like realization that he he has arrived at epiphany staring in the light and knows now who he is and so um, I, I just, I sort of liked the question at the end of like, what would you choose? Where would you rather be? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I don't even like, like water sports. So like, I'm not mm-hmm. looking for anything exciting here. Like I'm going lament configuration. <laughs> like sure. I, I, I will sit on the sidelines while people go ski. So I'm not going to like test out what they might mean by one of their gifts, uh, with, with the configurations. Yeah. Yeah. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about all of this today. I really appreciate it. And I'm so happy to have been given a a reminder to go back and watch broadcast news again. It had been too long. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Fantastic questions. This was such a great conversation. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. I truly appreciate your time. Thank you again to David Bruckner. You can watch his Hellraiser film on Hulu. The Night House, which I referenced in this episode, is also on Hulu if you want to watch one of the great horror performances of the past like decade from Rebecca Hall. And if you want to check out Broadcast News, one of the great performances in a journalism movie ever given by Holly Hunter, it is available to rent on demand pretty much anywhere. It's a classic. Educate yourself if you haven't done it. Revisit it if you already have. And now my one quick thing before I go. This came out of nowhere, guys trailer pops up on Twitter. It's just called 65. And it starts, it's like, 
one of the one of my action Twitter go tos, uh, the film commenter and journalist Vice Victus was like, uh, he was like dinosaurs and lasers. Sometimes it's just that simple. And I was like, well, great. What's going to be in here? And I'm thinking like some like cool direct to streaming thing like, oh, really? Dinosaurs, lasers. This doesn't seem like it could be. This doesn't seem like it could include an A-lister. And I hear the voice coming from the screen as I'm watching like a spaceship crash into a pastoral earth, into a verdant, into a verdant planet, unnamed planet so far. And then I realized that is Adam Driver. That is Adam Driver in this sci-fi movie that I'm told has dinosaurs and lasers getting out of this crash landed craft and the voice like the the title cards are like giving us little bits of information at a time and then it says it comes out with we've got Adam Driver in our hands and it says 65 million years ago and it's like uh whoa okay so what you're telling me is that past Adam Driver is from in some intergalactic population of human beings, and he crash-landed on Earth in the age of the dinosaurs, this Earth, 65 million years ago, which when you get that 65 million years ago, we only say, as a people, we only say 65 million years ago and we're talking about dinosaurs. If you ever say the words 65 million years ago, you are talking about something that involves dinosaurs. That's the only reason to reference that point of time. Honestly, I don't even know. I couldn't tell you for sure. Is it the Jurassic period? Is it the Cretaceous period? I don't know specifically, so I'm not going to use the word Jurassic, but it's dinosaurs. And so we get the 65 million years ago tip, and then what crashes into the frame but uh, but a dinosaur? And this movie reveals itself as, oh, he also finds a little girl in the forest. So then he becomes a very Mandalorian style sci-fi sudden dad to a small cute child. So he must protect child, uh, presumably aim to take her with him off of earth. What we are now know to be earth, wherever he's from, I don't know where he's from, but to succeed in surviving, they will have to fight dinosaurs. This is Adam driver this is a dinosaur fighting a dinosaur as amanda smith disaster girls co-host said to me in a chat this is megafauna versus megafauna driver v dinos and i it looks this movie looks like it's a deep fake like that looks like the only way that this movie exists is somebody deep faked adam driver onto a person and some person who loves to do VFX in their free time was like, oh my God, I would love to see Adam Driver and Space Gun versus Dinosaurs. And then they just whipped up a fake trailer for a movie that can't possibly exist in their home. That's what this is. And it's from Braun Studios. So that's a real place. Uh, so this movie's coming and it's real and it's called 65. And it is like, it says like in theaters. So this is a theatrical release. Adam Driver, thanks to you. Thank you for getting the script and being like, yes, I will. I'm Adam Driver. Yes, I will. That's amazing. That's an incredible statement to your talent and integrity. Uh, and that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod or send us an email at feelingscene@maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I am Crew on Twitter, J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is produced by Andrew Epen. This show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.